To protect their privacy, patients' names have been changed throughout this episode. We've chosen pseudonyms to present this story. In 2003, 26-year-old Andrew Jones took a train from Pennsylvania to New York City. He was anxious. His palms sweated as he suspiciously eyed the other passengers. When the car stopped at Penn Station, Andrew pushed his way through the crowds, exiting the station to a bustling cityscape. Andrew had come to New York for one reason, to visit Ground Zero. Over the past two years, he'd turned the event over and over in his mind. But something about 9-11 felt unbelievable to him, as if it never really happened. He needed to see it with his own two eyes. Andrew staggered through the streets of New York, seeming lost and dazed. But on his way to the World Trade Center, he spotted the United Nations headquarters. Suddenly, he decided he needed to get inside. Andrew banged on the doors, but a security guard refused to let him in. Through the glass, a breathless Andrew insisted he needed to speak with someone. He demanded asylum, as if he were a refugee. Empathizing with Andrew's distress, the guard came out to comfort him. But Andrew didn't want comfort. Confused, terrified, and frustrated, Andrew took a swing at the guard. And after a short scuffle, he was arrested and brought to a nearby psychiatric facility, Bellevue Hospital. Dr. Joel Gold met with the restrained Andrew. The patient was uncooperative demanding to speak with the director. Dr. Gold could tell that Andrew was in crisis, but before he could help his patient, Dr. Gold had to understand what was really troubling him. That's when Andrew revealed that his entire life was a lie. Nefarious TV producers had manipulated him for years and broadcast every moment. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on The Truman Show Delusion, a mental health condition in which someone believes they're being watched like a twisted reality show. This week, we'll meet Charlie, among other patients who believed he was the secret star of a game show. We'll explore his struggles to get a diagnosis and to treat his condition. Next week, we'll analyze the factors that may trigger TSD and examine theories about why this particular delusion is so widespread. 
We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. In 1991, screenwriter Andrew Nicole wrote a script called The Malcolm Show. The main character was an antisocial alcoholic in what he believed to be New York City. But Malcolm actually lived on a Hollywood backlot, and hidden cameras recorded his every move. Seven years later, a lighter, more upbeat version of Nicole's script debuted. Directed by Peter Weir, The Truman Show starred Jim Carrey as Truman Burbank, a man who has no idea he's the star of a reality TV show. Truman's father, mother, best friend, wife, and everyone else he knows are cast or crew hired to deceive him. But eventually, Truman sees the truth. His false friends and family try to convince him that he's delusional, but he doesn't buy it. Instead, he grows more erratic and violent. Finally, he escapes to reality. In 1998, 21-year-old Andrew Jones saw The Truman Show in theaters. When he went back to his Pennsylvania home that night, he couldn't get the movie's premise out of his mind. Andrew wondered if he, too, was the only real person living in a fabricated world. Over the next few months, the concept dominated Andrew's life. Like Truman, he believed he was surrounded by actors pretending to be his friends and family. Around that time, he also noticed apparent coded messages. It seemed like someone was hinting about the TV show. For example, whenever someone said the word cool, they were in on the scheme. In the film, Truman longs to travel to Fiji. It's on the opposite side of the world from his home, and he believes he can escape the reality show if he just gets away from his familiar hometown. Inspired by this plot point, Andrew tried to book a plane ticket to a foreign country. But international flights were too expensive, so he developed another plan. Andrew would go to Ground Zero in New York City. 
He'd come to believe that the producers of his show had staged the 9-11 terrorist attacks. If he could prove the tragedy hadn't really happened, maybe he could finally escape the show. In 2003, Andrew traveled to New York City, but he never made it to Ground Zero. He was arrested and sent to Bellevue Hospital. During a session with the chief attending psychiatrist, Dr. Joel Gold, Andrew shared that he was the subject of an ongoing reality show. The producers had even installed cameras behind his eyes. They were recording his every moment. Andrew had suffered from these delusions for five years, but he'd never sought mental health treatment. Dr. Gold saw psychotic patients nearly every day. So at first, he didn't think Andrew's strange beliefs were so surprising. What was unusual was Andrew's awareness of his mental struggles, even while he remained convinced that he was in a TV show. Sadly, before Dr. Gold could come up with a solution, Andrew was transferred to another hospital closer to home. But Dr. Gold didn't forget about Andrew or his unusual delusions. A few months later, another patient with identical symptoms checked in at Bellevue. Ben, like Andrew, had also traveled to New York City from out of state. Ben was from Los Angeles and believed that he was being followed and recorded by some shadowy global organization. Like Andrew, Ben's delusions began shortly after he first saw The Truman Show. Ben felt as though he was constantly being watched. The delusion was so stressful, Ben had considered suicide. But Ben believed that there was another way out of the show. He'd hallucinated producers who told him that his high school girlfriend was a fan of the program. If he climbed to the top of the Statue of Liberty, she'd meet him there. Then, he'd be free to resume his normal life. But if he made it to the top of the statue and she wasn't there, Ben would jump. Killing himself felt like the only real escape from his reality show. When Ben visited the statue in 2003, he found it had been closed since 9-11. His plan thwarted, he aimlessly walked around the city before checking into a homeless shelter. He explained his complicated and illogical worldview to the staff, and they took him to the nearest hospital, which was how he ended up in Dr. Gold's care. Ben told Dr. Gold, I was and am the center, the focus of attention by millions and millions of people. My family and everyone I knew were and are actors in a script. Dr. Gold worked with Ben to develop a treatment plan. Ben seemed to cooperate with his doctors at first, but only because he believed they were also actors in his show. Over the next few weeks, his distress grew and he became suicidal once again. Eventually, Dr. Gold decided that his staff couldn't ensure Ben's safety so they transferred him to a state hospital. But even after Ben left his care, Dr. Gold kept mulling over his claims. 
He found it strange that he saw two patients with identical, never-before-seen symptoms, only months apart. It seemed like they had the same disorder, something no other doctor had ever studied before. But Dr. Gold didn't know enough to say what the condition was beyond a form of psychosis. So Dr. Gold put the cases out of his mind. He had other patients who needed his attention. Meanwhile, a third young man began experiencing the same delusions. As Andrew Morantz writes in his New Yorker article entitled Unreality Star, the next victim of the Truman Show delusion was a young college man who we'll call Charlie. In 2007, Charlie began his freshman year. He loved the heightened worlds of fantasy and science fiction, playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and watching films. So Charlie decided to get a degree in filmmaking but he had a hard time adjusting to campus life. He didn't make friends easily, and he worried that his acquaintances judged him for not being more popular. He became extremely introverted. To distract himself from his unhappy life, he spent hours surfing the internet and working on new film projects. He used Adderall to stay up all hours of the night, anything to escape from reality. Adderall is an amphetamine, typically prescribed to patients with ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Amphetamines enhance the body's production of dopamine, a chemical that helps the brain feel pleasure. It also allows brain cells or neurons to communicate with one another. Researchers believe that people with ADHD don't transmit enough dopamine from cell to cell. So increasing dopamine levels can treat their symptoms. But it's also common for college students to abuse Adderall, as its focusing effects help them study. And when people without ADHD take amphetamines, their dopamine production can spiral out of control. This can create a sense of euphoria or terrible anxiety and insomnia or even temporary psychosis, including hallucinations, delusions, and erratic thoughts. Adderall didn't help Charlie's mounting anxiety, so he self-medicated with alcohol. It's possible that he blacked out for hours at a time. And when he came to, he couldn't remember what he'd done under the influence. He worried that he may have done something embarrassing or offensive. This added to his ongoing anxiety, driving him to drink and abuse more drugs. He was trapped in a vicious cycle. Soon, Charlie became obsessed with one specific possibility. If he had humiliated himself in public, someone might have recorded him and posted it online. Driven by this anxiety, Charlie settled into a new nightly ritual. He'd scour his classmates' social media accounts, desperately searching for videos of himself. Charlie never found anything, but the lack of evidence didn't comfort him. His thoughts only became even more troubling. Charlie believed someone was always watching him. 
This unseen figure tracked his internet activity and watched him through his laptop's webcam. They even sent Charlie subliminal messages through the websites he visited. These delusions lasted Charlie's entire freshman year. But by spring, Charlie was ready to go home. He hoped a familiar environment might help his paranoia and delusions go away. He also had something to look forward to now, a summer music festival. But even when Charlie said goodbye to his classmates, his feeling of being watched persisted. He continued to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol at home. Once in the middle of the night, Charlie's mother, Gretchen, caught him taking apart the family's thermostat. He pulled out the components one by one and examined them, as if he was searching for something. When she asked what he was doing, Charlie turned to his mother, and with a strange glint in his eyes, he claimed, I'm looking for the cameras in our home. Coming up, Charlie's condition takes a dangerous turn. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And now, back to the story. In 2007, Charlie's first year of college was extremely difficult. His social isolation and drug and alcohol abuse grew into paranoia. He believed he was constantly being surveilled. Charlie kept his delusions from the rest of the world, but he spiraled out of control. Until one night, when his mother Gretchen caught him checking the thermostat for hidden cameras. Gretchen was worried, but Charlie blamed the odd behavior on his stress and Adderall use. She wasn't sure if she should allow Charlie to go to the inaugural Rothbury Music Festival the following month. She knew music festivals were hubs for dangerous drug use, and Charlie didn't need the temptation. On the other hand, Charlie desperately wanted to go. The festival was the one bright spot in his life. He begged his mother not to take this away from him. So she set an ultimatum. He could go as long as he checked into rehab immediately afterward. Charlie agreed and set off with his sister and three of her friends. They planned to meet up with Charlie's father, a promoter of the festival who lived in Los Angeles. On July 3rd, 2008, Charlie and his friends arrived at the festival and pitched their tents. Almost immediately, Charlie located a drug dealer. He bought $100 worth of acid and ecstasy. Charlie took some of the drugs and drifted through the crowd in a haze. But in the back of his mind, he still wondered if anyone was recording him. 
Scanning the crowd for hidden cameras, he wandered to the main stage where the Dave Matthews Band was playing. As the ecstasy kicked in, Charlie felt like their music and lyrics permeated his consciousness. They struck a deep chord in his psyche. In the past, Charlie had believed he'd received subliminal messages through the internet, but this was something new. The Dave Matthews Band spoke directly to him through their lyrics. He understood that the song So Much To Say was about his freshman year of college when he'd been in a dark, depressed state. They sang about words creep up inside, apparently referring to the subliminal signs he'd received. It was like the Dave Matthews Band knew everything he'd been through, and they were sharing his story with everyone at the festival. And that's when a wave of realization hit Charlie. Charlie was the subject of the biggest hidden camera prank show in history. He was being watched by millions of people, and everything he'd been through had led up to this moment. Charlie knew that many TV game shows featured large cash prizes, and he couldn't say why, but he was certain he could win a million dollars that day and then return to his ordinary life. All he had to do was call his father, who would emerge from the crowd and guide him on stage. But Charlie couldn't get a grip on his phone or dial his father's number. The drugs interfered with his coordination. As the song finished, Charlie watched his opportunity slip away. He didn't know if he'd ever have another chance to leave the show. Instead, every second of his life would be broadcast to millions from then on. That night, Charlie nursed resentment over his failure. Even when the drugs wore off, the delusion persisted. Early the next morning, Charlie's sister discovered him pacing around outside their tent. He still hadn't slept. She asked her brother what was wrong. Charlie replied, smile, you're on camera. But the look in his eyes terrified her. Charlie's sister immediately knew something was very wrong. She called her mother and father to tell them Charlie had taken a turn for the worse. His family forced him to leave the concert early and fly to rehab in Montana. When a worker at the rehab center told him he'd be under intense observation, Charlie took this as confirmation that his delusions were true. During his recovery, Charlie looked for more proof. He opened random closets and halls, searching for hidden equipment or crew members. He behaved erratically, hoping to startle the show's production team. Naturally, he didn't find any concrete evidence of the camera crew, but he did leave the rehab center earlier than anticipated. The staff explained to Charlie's parents that they weren't equipped to handle a patient like him. His problems were bigger than drug and alcohol abuse. After returning home, Charlie refused to seek further treatment. But he did confess to Gretchen that he was the star of his own TV show. 
Charlie's parents didn't know what to do with that admission. They sent him back to school, hoping the problem would fade away on its own. And Charlie reassured them that sophomore year would be different. He had a brand new grasp on reality. Charlie really meant the show's producers could no longer fool him. Now that he knew how to play the game, he started to enjoy the attention, even if it was all in his head. Even Charlie's professors noticed how the formerly dour student now goofed around with his classmates. He enrolled in acting classes. His social life seemed to improve. Except rehab hadn't done much to curtail Charlie's behavior. He continued to stay up late into the night, writing instead of sleeping. He scrawled his thoughts in a journal, recording them for his fans. And around this time, Charlie's delusions heightened. Now he heard a disembodied voice speaking to him. Charlie believed the voice belonged to the show's producers. They informed Charlie that a speaker and microphone had been installed in his head overnight. Now, even Charlie's thoughts would be broadcast to the world. The producers explained that this would enhance the entertainment value of the show. Charlie had been too boring, especially when he slept. Now they were in his head. Even his dreams were going to be televised. To make the show more interesting, the producers ordered Charlie to perform random tasks, like standing on one leg or running up and down a staircase all night. They criticized his appearance, encouraging him to go days without eating so he'd lose 50 pounds. And Charlie did it all. When he returned home after his sophomore year, he told his mother about the voices. This time, she begged him to make an appointment with a mental health professional. But Charlie thought his producers wouldn't like that. And Charlie still believed in the inevitable grand prize, which had been upped from $1 million to $100 million. The producers had never told him how he would win it, and Charlie was terrified of losing his reward. Finally, Gretchen convinced her son to go to therapy, but he was uncooperative in his sessions. Still, the therapist was able to give him a general diagnosis, delusional disorder of the persecutory type. Delusions are a fixed belief in something that contradicts reality. A patient with delusions often refuses to accept any information that goes against their core convictions. Rather, they will rationalize the evidence away. There are several kinds of delusions. Grandiose, also known as delusion of grandeur, is the belief that a person is the most important individual in their community, or perhaps the universe. Charlie believed he was the star of his own TV show, a delusion of grandeur. The persecutory category refers to a patient's belief that they are being threatened by a powerful external force. Charlie's delusion was also persecutory because he believed the people closest to him were liars. Everyone was conspiring against him, keeping him from living his real life. 
According to the American Psychiatric Association, delusions can also be categorized as bizarre or non-bizarre. A delusion is considered bizarre if it exists outside the realm of possibility. For example, a man who believes himself to be made of glass is experiencing a bizarre delusion. But in the era of smartphones and instant fame, Charlie's paranoia that he was being filmed at all times was classified as non-bizarre. It could happen. The problem was, Charlie never told his therapist about his voices. That might have clued his doctor into the bigger issue at hand and helped him identify the bizarre elements of his delusion. Instead, without a diagnosis, Charlie was doomed to never leave the show. Coming up, the grand finale of The Charlie Show. And now, back to the story. In 2009, 19-year-old Charlie believed he was the star of the world's largest reality show. His producers communicated with him via a wireless speaker implanted in his head. Charlie went to rehab for his drug and alcohol addiction, but he never managed to stay sober. Even when he wasn't drunk or high, he still experienced strange delusions. The problem seemed to be independent of his substance abuse. But Charlie refused further treatment. He still hoped that one day he'd win the show's grand prize, $100 million. In the first semester of his junior year, the voices constantly spoke to Charlie. His nightly journal entries were endless rambles, chronicles of his deteriorating mental state and intense paranoia. Then, one afternoon, the producers offered Charlie a new way out, a life-changing story arc for his character to fulfill. Charlie had to join the cast of Saturday Night Live. Charlie had never considered a career in comedy, but his producers instructed him to perform stand-up. By this time, Charlie's general demeanor had gone from friendly and outgoing to erratic and unsettling. In addition, the constant pressure to be entertaining on camera elevated his anxiety. So during his first open mic performance, his jokes and delivery were poor. His audience didn't laugh. But Charlie's lack of success didn't matter. He thought he had an in. NBC's casting agents had to have seen his show. He just had to fly to New York and join the cast. Then he could finally claim his prize. On a cold Saturday in New York City, Charlie made his way to 30 Rockefeller Plaza, where Saturday Night Live was filmed. His producers told him that if he met with the show's creator and executive producer, Lorne Michaels, he'd be cast in that night's episode. So Charlie approached a security guard and told him he was there for a meeting with Mr. Michaels. The guard 
who was used to aspiring comedy stars, politely told Charlie he couldn't let him in. The producers remained silent. They didn't offer him any guidance. It seemed like Charlie needed to get on the show on his own. But Charlie couldn't get past security. And once again, a chance to escape slipped through his fingers. Charlie realized that the show had become a prison. He sat alone in the lobby before finally making his way back outside to the famous ice skating rink. And for the first time, Charlie realized no one gave him a second glance. New York's tourists should have swarmed him, begging for autographs and selfies. But they all acted like he was an ordinary guy. For the first time, Charlie questioned his delusions. How could his all-powerful producers hire a cast and crew of thousands to lie to him every day, yet be unable to get him into an office building in New York? The thing is, delusions like Charlie's can be incredibly resilient. Research has shown that extreme confrontations with reality can be effective, but unfortunately, Charlie's doubts didn't last. The trip shook him to his core, but by the time he returned to college, Charlie once more believed he was a TV star. At the end of his junior year, Charlie decided to drop out and move to Los Angeles to live with his father. He reasoned that being closer to Hollywood would make for a more interesting show, and he'd have a better chance at the prize. But there was no way Charlie's father would let him move in without seeing a psychiatrist first. His mother put her foot down, too. She'd begun to receive a huge influx of mail, dozens of returned letters Charlie had mailed to random addresses. Over the course of a few months, Gretchen had received more than 200 returned envelopes addressed to various celebrities. She read the notes in which Charlie begged for their help, for a way to leave his show. He thought his fellow celebrities might have some insight. One read, I'm currently stuck in a mind control loop. My career and life are in ruins. Gretchen was crushed. She'd never imagined that his delusions had gotten so bad. She also didn't know how to help him. For so long, Charlie had refused treatment. Luckily, she didn't need to give Charlie an ultimatum or force him to see a psychiatrist. Soon after she found the letters, Charlie told Gretchen that his producers were finally allowing him to seek help. It's hard to say what motivated this sudden change of heart. Maybe Charlie's desire to free himself from his delusion was strong enough to shape the voices in his head. Whatever the reason, in June 2010, Charlie moved to Los Angeles and saw a research psychiatrist at UCLA. Dr. Stephen Martyr was the first mental health professional to get Charlie to admit that he heard voices. Armed with that vital piece of information, Dr. Martyr treated Charlie for psychosis. Stress and drug abuse are two triggers for psychosis. Surely, the stress and anxiety Charlie experienced during his freshman year took a toll on his mental health. According to the National Health Service, amphetamines may also trigger psychosis. 
Controversially, some have suggested that some teenagers' frequent marijuana consumption can lead to an increased risk of schizophrenia later on in life. Charlie had been an avid pot smoker since high school. The diagnosis also fit the other patients who'd shared Charlie's symptoms. Andrew went to New York to investigate the 9-11 tragedy shortly after a risky weight loss process. The over-the-counter supplements he'd taken made him lose 40 pounds in two months. It's possible that something in these supplements or the shock of the extreme diet triggered his condition. Ben, who went to New York to visit the Statue of Liberty, was addicted to crack cocaine. He spent $150 per day on drugs. Cocaine is a stimulant like amphetamines and also a potential trigger for schizophrenia. Charlie wasn't a crack user, but he took Adderall and marijuana recreationally for years. It's possible this, combined with his high stress levels, led to the onset of his Truman Show delusion. To treat this condition, Dr. Martyr prescribed an antipsychotic drug called ziprasidone or geodon. It's typically used to treat extreme cases of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. However, patients must spend weeks gradually raising the dosage before they'll notice the effects. In the meantime, Charlie regularly met with Dr. Martyr for cognitive behavioral therapy sessions to help him differentiate fantasy from reality. He learned coping mechanisms, like repeating the word peace until he relaxed. Dr. Martyr's techniques helped him dismiss dangerous thoughts. A few weeks after he began treatment, Charlie stopped believing that his doctors, nurses, family, and friends were reading from a script. It was a revelation. For the past three years, Charlie had felt completely alone. He'd avoided social contact because he didn't believe anyone really cared about him. But now he had a diagnosis that made sense and the tools to connect with the people around him. Six months into his treatment, on November 10, 2010, Charlie woke up and the producers were gone. By the end of the month, he could finally admit that the voices, the show, everything was a delusion. Charlie was on the road to recovery. But as reality set in, Charlie realized he'd built his life around a celebrity career that didn't exist. Charlie had believed he was a significant global figure. Now, he had to contend with the reality that he was just a normal guy. This left Charlie feeling depressed and anxious, but now he knew how to manage his feelings. He sought treatment. In an interview with The New Yorker, Charlie explained, if I have an overwhelming fear I cannot rationalize, I discuss it with my therapist. One day in 2012, two years after he began his recovery, Charlie found an article mentioning Dr. Joel Gold. Dr. Gold studied people who suffered from the same delusions as Charlie, the belief that they were trapped in a reality TV show. Suddenly, 
Charlie realized he wasn't alone. His condition was more common than he thought. Charlie decided to contribute to Gold's research and got in touch. Since meeting Andrew in 2003 and then working with similar patients, Dr. Gold and his brother Ian, a professor of philosophy and psychiatry, dubbed the condition the Truman Show Delusion, or TSD. TSD sometimes appears in conjunction with schizophrenia. It's a symptom that takes on a life of its own until it becomes all-consuming. But Dr. Gold also had some TSD patients who didn't have schizophrenia. He didn't fully understand where their symptoms came from. In fact, there was still a lot about the condition that Dr. Gold didn't understand, in part because no one had really studied it before. Since publishing their first paper about TSD in 2012, Joel and Ian Gold became the world's preeminent, if not only, experts in TSD. Dr. Gold's biggest question was why these people shared the same specific delusion. Why did they all think they were on a television show watched by millions? Why were they all so certain there was a prize at the end? And why was New York City a nexus for people with TSD? Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information on Truman Show Delusion, amongst the many sources we used, we found the New Yorker article Unreality Star by Andrew Marantz and Suspicious Minds, How Culture Shapes Madness by Joel and Ian Gold, extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll look at larger trends with TSD and explore why the condition is becoming more common. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Eric Stanke, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.